Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This show is all about sense of place. We each place value on where we come from. Many of us seek out the stories of our relatives who at one time may have traveled from the known to the unknown. Their journeys have impacted where we grow up and the communities we now hold close. Today, where we live, we bring you the story of two Connecticut artists. The first is Mohammed Hafez, a Syrian-born architect who had few opportunities to know his homeland. He was raised mostly in Saudi Arabia before moving to the U.S. His nostalgia for his birthplace now influences his artwork. Coming up, we'll talk with Simsbury resident Melissa Krogan, who traveled twice to Jordan to help refugee children. We'll hear how she created an art course to connect with them. And later, mass migration is impacting Europe now. What will it look like in the future? Ambassador William Lacey Swing from the International Organization for Migration, or IOM, will join us to help answer that question. First, I spoke with New Haven resident Mohammed Hafez the same week when the Syrian government defeated rebel forces in Aleppo. Since the start of the Syrian civil war, thousands have left Syria and thousands more have died. Born in Syria, Hafez creates sculpture portraits of Syrian cityscapes and street life. His work has evolved along with the devastating war in his home country. His latest creations symbolize the destruction of historical architecture and of humanity. Here's my interview with him. Welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. So you were born in Damascus. Tell me about your upbringing. I was born in Damascus, that is correct, but I've only lived there for a month as a baby. Then we quickly moved to Saudi Arabia, where I was raised for 15 years. So I grew up very far away from home. It was not until we moved back in 1999 that I actually discovered my roots, who I was, and where I come from. Tell me about first why your family moved to Saudi Arabia and what it was like to live there. I've, heard, um, I've actually talked to a man from Syria, and he gave me some of his um, observations while he was there. But I'm curious what, what it was like for you. That's an interesting question. My family faced forced migration three times in their history. Uh, my father is a physician that lived in and worked for 22 years in Germany decided to come back to Syria and rebuild his life and give back to the country. But that was early 80s where the turmoil of um, some problems there was evident and life, you know, was very difficult. Uh, There were small clashes in a northern city called Hama that made its way to Damascus. And one day, clashes were so intensified that there was a bombing in my uh, older sibling's school. And that's when he decided that, okay, this was a bad idea moving back, and whatever it takes, I need to go find another future. So they've moved to Saudi Arabia and uh, obtained a a job there as a physician. How big is your family? We are four siblings. I am number three. So your father fled took his family to Saudi Arabia um, to ensure your safety. Mm -hmm. But growing up there, what was it like? It was good in the sense that we were surrounded and and contained in in a campus for doctors. 
uh, I really did not experience the local community much. For 15 years, I would only leave that campus to school and, and back or, or shopping uh, or visits with my family. But I never left the compound, as they call it, uh, on my own. The negative part is um, you always feel as a foreigner that doesn't belong there. You're surrounded by uh, American and British uh, doctors and uh, you know other Arab nation nationalities that work there, but you don't know where you come from. In fact, where we were, we were uh, based in the largest military base outside of Riyadh. So we drove 100 kilometers each way every day to go to school. So you really were secluded. Oh, yes, extremely secluded. But it was, it was very good thinking back at it now. In, in this new world that we live in, I had a blessed childhood. I really did. So you lived for there for 15 years. What was it like to return uh, to Damascus when your father retired? Well, I'll tell you, it was electrifying. It was the first time ever that I resonated with a place, that I felt that I belonged to this land, and this is the culture that I come from. It explained so many questions that I had about myself and my family and where I come from. Every day was a very unique experience. I was 15 years old. My peers w were playing video games and soccer. I was the kid that would walk for hours the streets of old Damascus, studying the architectural details, the narrow doorways, the layers of paint on the walls that have been shipped off to expose something that maybe was painted a 100 years ago. And I would sit in the corner and sketch all of these moments. I would sit in cafes and just listen to the conversations uh, the, in, in loud voices. And somebody, you know, standing on the balcony yelling at his neighbor downstairs. They're not fighting. They're having, they're asking each other about their daily life. They're not fighting. But the, the emotion there, the interaction is so intense, multiplied by 10 on, on so many levels that it becomes an experience on its own. And you get another merchant walking, yelling as loud as he can, you know, uh, trying to sell his stuff, and mosques and churches and birds and cars and horns. And, and it's, it's just a big, big celebration of life. You no longer felt like a foreigner. I no longer felt as a foreigner. I felt that I belonged for the first time. And that's what hurts the most, that I've only experienced this for four years uh, before I got to be unplugged and sent back to the diaspora again. Now, you've been living in Connecticut for some time. How did you find your way here? <laughs> so we had a tradition with my older siblings of attending Iowa State. Started with my older brother, came here in 1990, became a computer engineer uh, in, in Iowa State where they built the first computer ever. Then went off and, and worked for Motorola and et cetera. Then my sister followed because he was here and she became an interior designer. And like I said, my siblings are 14 years older than me. So I was a little boy dreaming about following their footsteps and getting an American college degree as well. 
in Iowa. In Iowa. Oh, I I visited my campus when I was seven years old. So I knew that I wanted to be at Iowa. (laughs) So you did your undergrad there? I guess. 2003, I did a year in Chicago. And then from 2004 to 2009, I was at Iowa State. It's an interesting time uh, to come to this country as an immigrant mm-hmm. uh, from a Middle Eastern country. Oh, yeah. Just to, you know, I'm just wondering what um, you experienced just a couple years after 9-11. It was very interesting. You would think for a middle-class family like us with two siblings that have been educated in the United States, numerous visits pre-9-11 here. We spent a lot of vacations here that my visit to the United States to obtain my own education would be a piece of cake and my visa would be very easy. Well, as it turns out, it took a year and a half to issue me clearance and to approve my visa, my student visa. Student visa. Correct. And during that year and a half, it it was very difficult for me waiting and trying to decide what I would do with my life with no (laughs) answer. It even got more complicated when I arrived in the United States only to discover that my visa was valid for a single entry only, which was very common for Middle Eastern students at the time, which meant you would risk everything if you ever think about going back home to visit. And that resulted in me staying here eight years without the ability to visit home. So you went to college to study? Architecture. Yes. So you, in your mind, you know, you're somebody that likes to create? Oh, absolutely. I love model making <laughs> and designing and sketching. And how did you take that application um, into making it into a passion? So you were studying to be an architect, but then you also were, you consider yourself an artist. So how did you start creating maybe, you know, after classes or on the weekends? Well, I'll tell you. So the <laughs> aftermath of eight years of not being able to go home is severe homesickness. And one night in studio right after finishing an architectural project, you know, we built a lot of models as architectural students. I collected, I remember collecting all the scraps that fell on the ground or my peers have thrown away. Uh, and I collected them. And just out of, you know, nostalgia, I put these wood scraps together. And a few hours later, I looked at what I've created, and it turns out that I've created sort of subconsciously a a model of a facade that belongs to old Damascus streets. Mm. And it was very intuitive. It was a a simple discussion of with these found objects and what they could be. And that's when I discovered that, okay, if I can't go home, I can recreate home in miniature models. And and that process in itself was very therapeutic. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. I'm speaking with Mohammed Hafez. He is an artist, an architect. He works and lives in New Haven, uh, was born in Syria, and we're talking to him about his journey here to the United States. Now, you mentioned... um, Damascus. For those of us who've never been there, tell us about this city. Very, very mm-hmm. storied history. Damascus is the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. So think about that as an architect, as an artist, as, a, as somebody interested in art and culture and archaeology. How many layers of culture is there in the oldest city in the earth? Yeah. That is Damascus. Very similar to Aleppo 
very similar to Jerusalem. All of these cities that were the cradle of civilization that were mentioned in the Bible, in the Quran, in the Torah, these are, I don't know if I can explain it to you in in two minutes. It's a life of its own. Mm -hmm. It's layers and layers and layers of civilization that has coexisted for centuries. What I tell people, if you live in an apartment for two years and move out, undoubtedly you leave some marks on the walls, right, on, with your pictures. Imagine what you would leave behind if you lived there for centuries. Mm-hmm. And that's what captivated me in Damascus, that you would walk around and see all these traces of Islamic and biblical and Jewish heritage, Roman architecture popping out of old Damascus. We have Roman columns that are only showing three meters above ground. These things are typically 15, 20 meters tall. Imagine how much is buried underground. Mm -hmm. And that's old Damascus for you. In 2011, you got to go home. What was that like? Correct. That was the first time I was able to go back with work. We did a project in neighboring city in Beirut, Lebanon. So it was no question that I would drive to Damascus and visit. I was really thirsty for my country, let's put it this way. So I started documenting my existence in that country consciously and subconsciously in so many ways. For instance, I would walk in the streets of old Damascus, just experiencing these layers of social interaction, the merchants on the streets, the birds flying in the sky, the pigeons with the call to prayer being called from several minarets echoing with the church's bells ringing in, in, a, in a performance way. The whole city is, is performing together. This is, you don't find this anywhere else, this complexity in life, um, the layers of life that was going concurrently captivated me. So I took recordings of all of these moments. I would sit in a cafe and I'd pull up my phone and record simple conversations, simple, you know, fun times that are people having uh, in, in the city of Damascus. Well, five years after the war, I come across these recordings only to find that I have captured a moment of peace that is no longer existent. That's right. The Civil War started later in in 2011. Yes. And how did your art change? So you had these images of what Damascus looked like back in 2011. You said a moment of peace. Right. Um, How did that evolve when you've been watching, like everyone else here, what's happening in Syria? You see... I have always felt that I've never had enough of my country. And that one visit in that summer, I stayed there for a month and a half. I got stuck there for a month and a half, waiting for my visa to be restamped, a process that was supposed to be a, a week long. But it was the best thing that was ever happened to me. That influenced my work significantly because my work mirrors my state of mind and, and, and thought inside me. Most of my pieces are not planned or designed. It is what I feel put into model form. And I take refuge in modeling. So consequently, the earlier work reflect a moment of peace 
and tranquility in the country and, and nostalgic feelings in me. Later works during the war reflect a turmoil and a, and, a, and a sheer force inside me of witnessing my country deteriorating into a, a vicious civil war. The most recent works reflect even more personal um, pain of forced migration, including my own family's forced migration mm. um, and the emotional baggage that we carry. And that's what you see in my recent work. Because we're on the radio, try to describe one of your recent pieces for our listener. So recently I've been very interested in the emotional baggage, in the baggage series. Um, all of us carry emotions in us. We come from um, something very personal to us. Most of us don't choose not to show it to the world, right? We carry on with our daily life. So there's a perception recently that refugees or forced migrants all come from impoverished backgrounds, uneducated backgrounds. And I am interested to destroy that perception in telling my own family's story and people that I know, uh, whether it's my brother-in-law that became a refugee in Sweden or many Syrian refugees uh, that we have met uh, in, in greater New Haven area. So to describe one of these pieces... I collect antique suitcases that are opened and sometimes out of this suitcase there's a completely decimated architectural building model of a building that is modeled very high detail. And as you see in Aleppo on ground, these, these forces and um, Missiles, when they fall on the ground, they shear off the facade, exposing the life that was going on beneath them. So you'd see furniture of bedrooms and life that was happening till the very last minute before the bomb fell. And that's what I try to capture in these models that I'm seeing. So I use a lot of broken miniature dollhouse furniture. I was just thinking, like a dollhouse. It's exactly. Only something that you would think, oh, I've seen this. I've seen it coming out of Aleppo or Syrian cities. To tell the world that people are carrying this emotion and this baggage uh, with them wherever they go. On the other side, there's another baggage series where the interior of it is rather a lush French Victorian uh, living room, like the one my parents left behind. You know, our house is very beautifully detailed. Um, the one, the house that my brother-in-law left behind with beautiful Victorian furniture. So not all forced migrants ca come from, uh, you know, impoverished. Some of them actually had rather left a very successful life and they did not choose to leave. They were forced to leave. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. I'm speaking with New Haven resident Mohammed Hafez, who is an architect and an artist. Um, we're talking with you um, during a week when uh, we hear that uh, Syrian government forces have, are retaking the, the city of Aleppo. Mm -hmm. um, what are your thoughts when you pick up the newspaper, see it on the news of what this city looks like today? Not to, not to forget the number of people who have died over the last four years. It, it is very difficult. Um, 
Very difficult. I think you are meeting me uh, in a very rough week for all Syrians around the world. Um, for, you know, anybody with a straight conscience <laughs> can feel very lost uh, witnessing the atrocities that are committed in Aleppo and the amount of devastation there in the day and age where we are so connected socially and technologically. Something like this would happen again. You mentioned you wanted to dispel the myth that when people think of refugees, they think of people that all come from poverty. Um, but when we see the, the 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 civilians that have been left behind in Aleppo, are these the people who had no means to leave as the war raged on? Right, right, exactly, and that's very important. Those that had the means have left four years ago, and perhaps my parents were among those people. It does not make us any better than the people that left now. It does not make those people any lesser than we are. It gives me a responsibility to speak on their behalf while I have the platform in the West world, uh, in, the, in this global world that we, we all are citizens of. Um, it is a responsibility that I take really dear to me mm-hmm. in, in speaking up and telling the pain. In order to humanize the conflict, you don't ride the seas on a little refugee float or uh, you know in the middle of the night unless the sea becomes much more safer than the ground. You mentioned your brother-in-law is a refugee in Sweden. What about your parents, your other siblings? Where are they? My parents are citizens of the United States, and this is a pure blessing and aftermath of just having older siblings that came here, you know, in 1990 and applied for them. We were just blessed to have the means to get my parents. But for, for, for example, my sister, my youngest sister, did not have the means. We all are American citizens or residents. But my younger, my youngest sister had nothing. She just has the Syrian passport. And that's what led her and her husband to finding uh, a new future for them and their two lovely children. So Connecticut and New Haven have been a home to you for some time. I understand um, you're married. Do you ever think that you'll be able to return to Syria one day? We all pray to return to Syria. I don't think I've ever met a Syrian citizen that will not tell you that they dream of the day to come back to Syria. And your work, um, obviously getting a lot of attention. You know, what, are, what is the, the final message that you want to leave our listeners uh, who may um, you know, see pictures of your work, may see them uh, displayed in galleries? This work is a window into the heart and feeling of a normal human being just like you, with a family and dreams and aspirations just like you. I am the voice of Syrian refugees, Muslim Americans, migrants, forced migrants. I am one of these voices. If you have fear against us or unsettling thoughts, come meet us, come meet me, come look at my work. Perhaps we can establish a common denominator, a common humanity amongst all of us. Mohammed Hafez is a Syrian artist and architect who lives in New Haven with his wife, 
Mohammed, it was so nice to meet you. So Thank nice you so to much. talk to you. Thank you for having me. After the break, we'll meet a Simsbury resident who chose to work with refugee children in Jordan. They connected through art. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. For many of us, the refugee crisis in the Middle East and Europe can seem like a distant tragedy, impacting our daily lives only when we catch a quick news headline. But after two trips to Jordan, the crisis has become personal for Simsbury resident Melissa Krogan. Krogan is a poet, an artist, and novelist. She spent two months in Jordan teaching art and poetry to Syrian refugee children. Melissa Krogan joins us now. Melissa, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Glad to be here. So you are a longtime resident of Connecticut. How did you find yourself in Jordan? It happened. It was quite happenstance. My daughter is a U.S. Foreign Service officer. And like many of us, I knew of the crisis in, in the Middle East and how it's the largest refugee crisis since World War II. And I was deeply concerned, but it was not on my radar until she was posted in Jordan and began sending me pictures and talking about it. One photograph in particular really got under my skin. It was of children running along the border, which, uh, you know, Jordan borders Syria and the war there. And they were leaping up and down, looking hopeful, eager, and each one had their hand raised in a peace sign. And I began to think of them as the peace children of Syria. I began to want to help them in a really personal way. I I brought this up with my daughter. I think that she was not sure if I was serious. Um, And then it took a year and a half to get there because I had to find a host organization. I couldn't – I didn't know how to just kind of – I didn't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was turned down by many. But finally, a Catholic humanitarian global organization by the name of Caritas – said, yes, we want you. And they liked this course that I was designing called Art to Lift the Heart. Mm. So you mentioned this Catholic um, organization that was able to sponsor you in the sense of going over there to do humanitarian work. Yes. What was it like when you first arrived in Jordan? Where did you go? We've heard that these refugee camps are extraordinarily Mm -hmm. large. Little realized uh, is the fact that 85% of the Syrian refugees in Jordan are not in the camps. Mm -hmm. They're living in the cities, on the streets, in the churches. So I went bumping around the countryside. I was picked up by a driver and a translator, taken to different refugee sites. Um, In my first time over, I went once a day to refugee sites and churches. The second time I went, the the churches had run out of resources and um, people were living elsewhere. And uh, so I went to refugee sites in the morning and to schools in the late afternoon. Tell us about the when you met up with the children and and where they were from. Well, there was a range. Most of them were Syrian. There were some Iraqi ones from Mosul. I remember in particular a group one day I arrived at a church and they didn't speak Arabic at all, which really threw my wonderful translator, Wad, who went everywhere with me. Um, So hand signals went a long way. They spoke, these kids spoke Aramaic, which is a very early Christian (laughs) um, language, and they're a minority sect. 
the children, I'll re- I remember Torak because uh, I met him the very first class. He sat apart. He wore a cheerful shirt. It was pink, but he had a very, in this contrast, it with a serious countenance. Um, he didn't engage in the coloring book activity. He rolled his eyes, you know. And then when I moved on to the inventive animal exercise, he I heard the scraping and he was moving his chair forward and I gave him a pencil and he began to draw this fantastic creature with antenna and goggle eyes at the end that he said could see all the way to his homeland in Syria. And all the children gathered around him. He left the class abruptly. I always remember this. And I despaired for a moment. I felt let down. I failed as a teacher. As I said, it was my first time out. And then after class, driving downhill by the medical center, the sun, was, which was out, was shining on this bright pink shirt. And I recognized Torak. And I wound my window down. I called out, Torak, how are you? And he was pushing a wheelchair with an older woman in it. And he said he, well, he beamed at me and he said, Alhamdulillah, which means praise God. And also, it just means all is good. So I felt that uh, somehow I had reached him a little bit and and helped in that instance. Did you get an opportunity to learn a little bit of his background and who that woman was in the wheelchair? Yes. I learned that it was his mother and her, and very sadly, her legs had been blown off by ISIS. So he was caregiving. He was rushing to take care of her, as he did every day. Yes. I will say I, I'm also thinking of Sarah, whom I met this last time. And her story was that she had been uh, best friends with a little boy age 10 who was shot by a sniper in the city of Homs and and killed in this park. And it was her grandfather's park. And now she was in Jordan. She'd been here a year and a half, and she refused to go to a park. And we we had an art therapy exercise where I was trying, the kids were drawing stick figures and faces, and hers would always be dark and separate from the community of stick figures or family friends I was hoping the kids would connect with. And then we moved into what I was calling my poetry exercise where they write their names, and their names are are beautifully written in this Arabic calligraphy. And we were illustrating the names, and she drew a flower. And then we did a dancing flower, and then somehow there was grass, and she began to do a park, and uh, this fantastic park with fountains, and I still do not know whether or not Sarah has gone to will go to a park, but at least she was connecting with this place that had once upon a time made her happy. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. I'm speaking with Melissa Krogan. She's a Simsbury resident who has traveled to Jordan and actually worked with refugees there, children, teaching them art and poetry. Uh, Melissa, you recently returned from Jordan, your second trip. What was that like? Well, I've only been back a week. so um, Welcome back. Yes, thank you. It, w- it was much better than my first time back. I will say I, I have learned something. The first time... I was experiencing sort of an empty nest syndrome, (laughs) 
big time exponentially, and I was very sad and just wanted to scoop up all those kids, all those refugee Syrian refugee children, and bring them home and take care of them. And I wasn't able to speak of uh, uh, my journey at all. I was sort of uh, give this monosyllabic, oh, it was wonderful. And then I went on to have a terrible accident. I broke my back. I fell off a horse. Uh, and I was in the hospital for 22 days. And in that time, in this time, I was having pain-fueled visions with the refugee children visiting me. Mm-hmm. And they would help me. Anyway, I then went on to write about it in a book that I'm currently writing, The Peace Children of Syria. The second time back, I feel a lot better. I feel stronger. I might even go back again. Who knows? <laughs> so you were able to create this this, uh, this art therapy program, um, starting with coloring books, then having mm-hmm. them write. Mm-hmm. How did you see the children connect? I mean, you mentioned these two specific children and, and seeing how mm-hmm. their drawings may have changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but did you see um, what you were doing impacting them beyond what was on the paper? I was able. I would see this expansiveness. They were able to get in touch with their emotions. I mean, here are children who have been traumatized, and everything has been taken away. Mm -hmm. So they really can't articulate a lot of what they've been through, and it would come out in their drawing, and I felt really very hopeful. Also, they were just cheerful and happy. They don't have art as a rule. They only have these two, three hours at the end of the day. So I did see some changes, Mm -hmm. I believe. You mentioned this memoir, The Peace Children of Syria. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us uh, a little bit more about it? I think you brought a selection uh, from that work. Sure, yes. I, I can read something here from uh, the book, and it's a poem. Sound and sense near the border of Syria. I sit down at the art table with Aya, Akram, Sargon, Torak, and Sarah. Free time after the exercises, and all of us drawing anything we want. Drawing together invites a hush, but today's hush is different. Intense, charged, you could not cut this hush with a sword. There is the sound of pencils gliding over paper, and the odd staccato of graphite made by Sargon, rat-a-tat-tat marks on paper. I nod encouragingly at Aya's portrait of her father. She makes the pupils of his eyes the size of olive pits and dark as a starless night. She studies her drawing, erases a tiny section to make the white of the iris. I cannot help but smile. Aya has found light. A few miles north of here, in Urbid, you can hear artillery from the war. Rat-a-tat-tat. Aya pauses, pencil midair. Her father was conscripted by the rebels, her father who is lost to her. Her pencil touches down, and she begins a cross-hatching that covers his mouth, his nose, his eyes. Not knowing what to say, I say, very nice, a different kind of shading. 
And that's a poem from Melissa Krogan. She is a poet and a Simsbury resident. Um, she's here with me on Where We Live to talk about uh, what led her to um, Jordan to work with these refugees. You know, there's a lot that has been changing um, in the news uh, politically. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you think about what's going to happen to these kids that are still at these, you know, at mm-hmm. these living at these refugee mm-hmm. camps? Absolutely, yes. Well, there was a great change from when I was there the first time. The mood is more tense in Jordan. It's recognized among the Jordanians and the refugees alike that they are not going home, perhaps ever, because there's so much destruction that's wrought. I think that all the aid organizations are keenly worried because they don't want to have uh, the aid cut and it's so crucial, as you know, or you, or I don't know how how many people know, but America is the largest world donor. Are you worried about when you mentioned that America is the largest donor for these kinds of organizations? What will happen mm-hmm. in the future under a new administration? Mm-hmm. Of course, I I am worried, and I hope perhaps the perhaps you can ask them to listen <laughs> to the show <laughs> because. Um, this area is just boiling and in need of um, a resolution, and um, and these kids need help. I mean, fully half of the refugees in Jordan currently are under the age of 25. We need to continue our good help, helping those who need us. I've been speaking to Simsbury resident Melissa Krogan. Krogan's a poet, an artist, a novelist. She spent two months in Jordan teaching art and poetry to refugee children there. She just recently returned from her second trip. Melissa, thank you so much for coming in and talking with us. Thank you, Lucy. I really enjoyed it. Now, the migrant crisis could grow. What are the factors that influence this? We'll find out from the global agency that oversees this very thing. It's the International Organization for Migration. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Thursday, power, politics, mafias. On the next Where We Live, we'll take a global look at organized crime with Dr. James Cocaine. His new book is called Hidden Power. That's Thursday. Now, today we've been talking about the refugee and migrant crisis from the perspective of two Connecticut artists. Now, we know war can lead to mass migration, but what are other factors that lead thousands to flee their homes? And how big of a problem will it be in the future? To help answer those questions, we're joined now by William Lacey Swing. He's Director General of the International Organization for Migration. He joins us by phone from Geneva. Ambassador Swing, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, we, we hear often in the news about thousands of migrants who have fled countries like Syria and traveled to Europe by sea. Uh, we know um, some of these people are then designated as refugees by the UN, and then many are still left and are considered migrants. Tell us the difference between these two designations. Well, our broad definition is that uh, every refugee is a migrant, but not every migrant is a refugee. So we have many people, in other words, who are traveling and who are vulnerable, but who are not, uh, uh, cannot claim the protection under the 1951 Refugee Convention. And these are the ones now that we are particularly concerned about in addition to the refugees. And how does your organization help them? Well, we have, first place, we are a global organization. We have 10,000 people in nearly 500 places around the world. 
we help uh, assisting uh, those who are in difficult spots. We bring victims of trafficking. Uh, we get them medical and psychosocial help. We take them back home. We try to prevent uh, the uh, trafficking and smuggling of people. Uh, we took 250,000 migrant workers home from Libya in 2011 with the fall of Gaddafi. Uh, we are working to help countries to improve their laws on migration. Uh, we work in many ways. We have uh, 15, 16 consultative processes around the world that bring countries of origin and destination together. We're act active globally in the Global Forum, trying to, to help people to understand better about human mobility and how one can prevent some of the deaths that are occurring along the ways and some of the suffering people are going through. Let's talk about the numbers. You know, it's been reported uh, that 2016 was the deadliest year for migrants and refugees since World War II. Can you give us a sense of how many people we're talking about here who've left their homes for whatever reason, and how many have died along the way? Well, this year, the numbers uh, going to Europe are actually down somewhat, but the deaths are higher. Uh, we have uh, 5,000 deaths as of the end of the year, and there are more since then, of course. Uh, we have 7,500 worldwide, counting the 5,000. In other words, about 20 migrant deaths a day. If you look back over the last three years, there are 18,000 uh, migrants uh, who uh, made the uh, attempt uh, to get to Europe uh, and elsewhere, and that averages about, uh, that's 18,000 over three years who have died, so about 16 a day. Uh, and of the 5,000 who died in the Mediterranean this year, that averages out to about 14 a day. Now, the, this is a figure that's very inaccurate. That's how many we know died. There could be many more who died in the Sahara Desert or others whose bodies were never found in the Mediterranean. Could be twice that many. But the news often um, looks at what's happening across the Mediterranean for people that are fleeing to Europe. And you were saying that the numbers are actually down, but fatalities are up? Right. The numbers of Arrivals are down, and the number of fatalities are up. There are some pretty uh, obvious reasons for that. For one thing, the boats of the smugglers are worse than they were before. Uh, they are making more money than ever. There's also a degree of desperation because of the armed conflict. We have at least eight armed conflicts from the western bulge of Africa to the Himalayas in Asia. Uh, poverty is not getting better. The socioeconomic disparity between global north and global south has increased. So the root causes are there. In addition, now we have to add into that environmental degradation and climate change. So we now can actually speak of climate migrants. So all of those things are going against uh, migrants at this point. Also, there is a huge and growing anti-migrant sentiment affecting our policies around the world. Instead of building bridges, we're building walls. Uh, we're not being very creative in our, in our migration policies. Rather than creating more legal avenues for people to migrate, we're shutting them down. So uh, for every legal migrant who comes in, there's less incentive for there to be an illegal one. Hmm. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking to William Lacey Swing, Director General of the International Organization for Migration. And we're looking at some of the root causes of mass migration and what it'll look like in the future. Um, Ambassador, you mentioned the pushback. Um, often when we hear about um, terrorism, um, we 
We know about what happened in Paris, more recently in, in Berlin. It makes people very afraid. What would you tell people, policymakers who are pushing back, who say they don't want these migrants in their country? Well, first of all, as far as the refugees are concerned, they are the most carefully vetted of anyone on the move. That actually has slowed down the process in a lot of cases and has made it more difficult for refugees to get to a new home. But also, we have to understand that terrorists can infiltrate any group, but we should not condemn migrants just because there had been a terrorist incident here or there. And if we were a little more liberal in our migratory uh, flows policy, uh, there would be uh, less opportunity. Uh, we also need to remember that other countries, we've never given enough credit uh, to the six neighbors of Libya and the four neighbors of Syria who've kept their borders open. Uh, Turkey today uh, has about three million uh, refugees. Uh, Water poor Jordan has two million and Lebanon, with a population of 5 million, has 1.5 million Syrians plus 500,000 Palestinians. So I think we need to understand that the flows are manageable, and with proper processing, we can help avert some of the terrible, horrific things that have happened. If Europe um, continues to close its borders, where will they go? Well, that is, that is a, very, a very important question. Right now, they are stuck in... Uh, en route, some in the Balkans, a lot in Greece, a lot in Italy, as I mentioned, many in Turkey, uh, many stuck in Libya. And the problem in Libya is that the, the detention facilities are in such bad conditions that um, we are trying to provide uh, food and other things to help these people out. We would like to return them to their home country because they'd like to go home. We have a program of returns if it's voluntary. So uh, I think they simply are almost being warehoused, if I want to put it that way, in a lot of these countries because they cannot go any further. You've been director general for some time. Um, where, where do we go from here? Um, you know, if we anticipate that mass migration will only continue, um, you know, bringing into the, the conversation uh, climate change and drought and where people right. will go when there is no water and they can't grow food, um, where do we go from here? Well, for one thing, we need to accept the reality that migration is as old as humankind. It's always been there. It will be there. It's even greater now, but percentage-wise, it's, it's, it's been the same for 40 years. It's about 3.3%. Uh, so the, the numbers are actually manageable, uh, including the flows into Europe. Um, we need, we're now trying to negotiate a global compact on migration to try to get some sense of shared responsibility on the part of all countries, countries of origin and destination and transit, that we have a responsibility to try to protect people who are on the move. And many of them are economic migrants. You have the sick and the elderly. You have pregnant women, uh, families with young children, family reunification. So we need to be much more sensitive to these different categories and realize that in the end, migration has always been overwhelmingly positive. We as Americans know that. Our country was built on the backs of migrants and with their brains and talent. And that continues to be the case. So I think we just need to do an about-face and recognize here is the, this is not a problem to be solved. 
it is a human reality that we as responsible individuals have to learn to manage. And what about when we look at root causes again, poverty, um, drought? I mean, what's being done globally to help um, those, you know, to alleviate those causes so that people aren't fleeing? Well, you're absolutely right. And this is this is the thing. There are two aspects here. We must do better in preventing uh, forced migration right now. 65 million forced migrants, about 23 million refugees, and about 42 million displaced persons. The 200 people we have inside Syria right now are doing nothing but supporting uh, IDPs, internally displaced persons. So we have to do more to try to prevent conflicts. A number of these situations probably could have been prevented with some diplomacy at the beginning and some additional development aid. Once we have a conflict, we have to do much better also about solving them. Right now, there are, as far as I know, no viable negotiations or viable political processes that offer us any hope of solving any of these right now uh, that I can think of. So both of those, you're quite right. These are the aspects we have to deal with, uh, and we have to do more to try to create employment uh, opportunities for youth in the global south. Because they're going to otherwise, they're going to have to to migrate somewhere else, uh, forced to migrate. I've been speaking with William Lacey Swing. He's director general of the International Organization for Migration. He joined us today from his office in Geneva. Ambassador Swing, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Check out WMPR.org slash where we live for more about the show. You can subscribe to our podcast. I'm Lucy Nalthathanchel. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>